Howdy. Welcome to the Managing Expectations Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Winger. This is episode 92, 3.0. And all things can be explained. I uh, have tried recording this a couple of different times. Once with my sister, Missy DeGee. Uh, also Paul Southern and Tears of Major and Technical Difficulties kept that one from coming through. Then I did one by myself and it was unspeakably horrible. It was soporific. The only thing that that interrupted the boredom was my dog losing her mind every time somebody walked by the house or the shuffling of, of papers like I was giving the worst lecture in the history of uh, education. What I'm talking about is being um, part of something and being next to something. And that's the theme today for what I really, really hope is the final attempt at managing expectations 92 last year uh, Stevie Van Zant um, wrote a memoir and in it he writes for me gangs weren't about conflict or competition they spoke to my natural impulse to belong to something I actually think that that speaks to me too there is an aspect of American life that is uh, romanticizes the the lone gunman in the middle of the street, but ultimately, you know, Will Kane in High Noon, Gary Cooper in in High Noon, he tried to get a posse together. He wanted uh, the community to stand together together against the outlaws. Um, it, it went another way. Um, I like, and I've, as I've gotten older, have liked even more uh, this idea of being a part of something uh, other than uh, big, being a part of something bigger than myself. Um, and, and, and that's part of what drew me to uh, Stevie Van Zandt's uh, book. Um, he's an interesting character. Uh, he's participated in uh, two epical pop cultural endeavors uh, first and probably foremost is Bruce Springsteen's uh, Once and Future Sideman uh, and then also as a fictional Sideman Silvio Dante on The Sopranos Van Zant was also catalytic uh, to bringing pressure upon South Africa's apartheid regime would Nelson Mandela have ever taken that long walk to freedom without Stevie Van Zandt, an artist against apartheid? No one can say, but Van Zandt has an idea, and he keeps that idea near his very formidable self-image. So again, last year, uh, Unrequited Infatuations was released. Its full title is Unrequited Infatuations, Odyssey of a Rock and Roll Consigliere, a cautionary tale. That is plenty of title. 
Uh, Van Zant is a participant in many uh, noteworthy events. Uh, he's, he's been present at others. Uh, and he's capable of joking at his own expense. For, ex for example, about uh, the lucrative events that he managed to sidestep. Now, our focus as we review this book and to a lesser extent the the work and the, um, the uh, infatuations of uh, Van Zant is going to be with Springsteen because, as has been uh, documented, uh, I'm a big Springsteen fan. Springsteen spoke to me at a, at a time in my life when uh, uh, it meant uh, it, it meant a lot. Now I think I'm a Springsteen fan. <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a Springsteen idolater. Uh, so you know there's you know there's been movies like Blinded by the Light. There was that documentary that I never saw called uh, uh, Bruce and Me, and all uh, uh, you know and and lots of other uh, efforts to by by people to establish themselves as Springsteen's number one fan. I give up. I'm not his number one fan, but I admire, I admire the guy's work very much. And I think to, a, to an extent, I would say that I admire Van Zant's work too, though, you know, there is, there is a difference between the two guys. Um, when I talk about Van Zant uh, being able to laugh at his own expense, uh, the biggest example is his leaving the E Street Band um, uh, just as the two-year-long Born in the USA world tour was beginning. Um, it was it was they were doing stadiums, they were doing uh, uh, out, they were doing uh, sports arenas, and then uh, in the winter time and outdoor stadiums in uh, the summer and the warmer months. Um, uh, so what was really going on was that Springsteen and the band, after more than a decade of work, uh, of, of building an audience uh, through legendary live performances um, and also critical acclaim, even accolades, uh, they were about to have their big payday. And so I turn to uh, uh, Van Zant's book as he explains uh, his own his own role in this. He says, "I liked being the underboss in the E Street Band, the conciliary. It kept me out of the spotlight, but allowed me to make a significant enough contribution to justify my own existence in my own mind. And there was a balance between me, Bruce, and John." He means John Landau, who was uh, Springsteen's manager and uh, the producer on some of these early albums. He says, uh, we had an artistic theory and artistic practice covered. But somewhere in 83, it started to feel like Bruce had stopped listening. He had always been the most single-minded individual with a natural extreme monogamy of focus in all things, in relationships, in songwriting, in guitar playing, and friends. Was that impulse now going to apply to his advisors? At the time, I was hurt by the thought that maybe John resented my complete direct access to Bruce. 
I liked John a lot and thought he felt the same about me. If anything, it should have been re I should have been the resentful one, but I wasn't. In the end, I don't think John had anything to do with the way things change. There comes a time when people want to evolve without any baggage, to become something new and different without having to stay connected to the past. This was, I think, one of those moments. Occasionally, you need to be untethered. Without all this retrospective wisdom, though, Bruce and I had our first fight, one of only three we would have in our lives. I felt I had been giving him nothing but good advice and had dedicated my whole life and career to him without asking for a thing. I felt I'd earned an official position in the decision-making pro process. He disagreed, so I quit. And that ended 15 years of uh, association with, uh, with, with Springsteen. Um, as far as uh, 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 performing arts, uh, uh, a show business celebrity biography goes, um, uh, unrequited infatuations, uh, covers a lot of the stuff. There's a lot of uh, uh, Van Zant's um, you know, views on things, um, his, you know, you know, some of the politics I'll touch on later. Um, but again, I was mainly drawn to the book because of, uh, spring, uh, because of Van Zandt's proximity to Springsteen. Um, I'm, I'm a Springsteen fan. I'm not really familiar with Van Zandt's work in The Sopranos and in um, uh, Lilyhammer. Uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit for inventing um, the, the, the radio formats for uh, Sirius XM's uh, underground, Little Stevens Underground Garage and also Outlaw Country, which I could listen to all day long. Um, but I, I, I would... And, and these are just some of uh, Van Zant's accomplishments. Uh, I think he's singularly um, to to credit uh, for uh, Southside Johnny and the Ashbury Jukes, who he uh, managed for a short time and produced. Uh, he uh, has contributed to just a ton of bands, both... Um, uh, being credited and and not uh, from Lone Justice to Bob Dylan, uh, I've spoken before about how in the 1980s the disease of uh, synthesizers and even worse, synthonic drums. Oh my goodness, that just that that business and it's in a ton of soundtracks. It's in a ton of pop music. Van Morrison couldn't escape it. Lou Reed couldn't escape it. Almost no one escaped it, including Bob Dylan. Dylan uh, has a song, The Night Comes Falling from the Sky. Uh, when the Night Comes Falling from the Sky, I should say. Uh, it's on his Empire Burlesque album, and it, friends, is terrible. It is all the synthesizers and all the synthesized drums, and, and it's not good. But there's a version of it that uh, Steve Van Zant produced, 
and played guitar on, and Roy Bitten of the E Street Band played p piano on, and that's available on Bob Dylan's uh, bootleg series, one through three. And let me tell you what, it blows the roof off the place. It's great. So, see, uh, and then his recent solo work, he, he wrote a song called uh, St. Valentine's Day, which uses, you know, the holidays as uh, just as, as placekeepers, as timekeepers, uh, to see whether or not uh, this couple is going to um, uh, make it. Uh, he uh, uh, has, has uh, been touring, he's been writing, and uh, for these things, uh, he deserves credit. Uh, furthermore, I like his use of horn, uh, horns. Uh, I like his guitar sound. Uh, I think lyrically, uh, Little Steven is uneven, uh, but I like him. Uh, his first record was called Men Without Women, uh, after the book by the book of short stories uh, written by Ernest Hemingway, and he goes into that uh, in his book. Um, I thought I thought Men Without Women had a great single in uh, Forever. If I give you my heart, would you love me forever? And it had some had some very good tracks. Uh, it was very New York City. Uh, it was very Italian. Uh, I, I would say uh, he's got a song, Princess of Little Italy. Um, um, his second album was called Voice of America. And uh, it was uh, noisier and flashier uh, and absolutely more political. It wasn't quite a punk record. And the that version of the Disciples of Soul wasn't quite a punk band. If anything, they were uh, flashier with their um, garish uh, thrift store, Greenwich Village uh, uh, clothing. Um, they reminded me of like Thin Lizzy or one of the flashier uh, New York bands. Now, I should say that I saw uh, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul uh, both times they toured behind those albums. So I saw him uh, both times in Denver uh, at the Rainbow Music Hall, which wasn't a club. It didn't have a bar. It didn't serve drinks. It was a theater, probably seated 2,000. Um, uh, the acoustics were fantastic. And uh, so so uh, the first time he had uh, Richie LaBamba and... Uh, they had like a, a whole horn section and it was great uh, though they didn't have a ton of songs to play I, I mean they could have played oldies all night but they didn't uh, the next time they played with uh, uh, they didn't have the horns and it was it was much louder uh, again much more political in its in its tone uh, at this point um, the 80s were in full swing and while Mostly the narrative of the 80s was, you know, Reagan's Morning in America, you know, 1984. Frankly, even Springsteen's Born in the USA album, as, as grim as the title track actually is, most people didn't pick up on that. And so Born in the USA itself kind of fed into uh, the narrative that um, the Reagan administration was uh, uh, writing about about the the country, 
Uh, in the meantime, uh, the Cold War was absolutely in full swing, and there were uh, there were communist movements and counter-revolutionary movements throughout Central and South America, and much of Voice of America is focused on that. The uh, the title track is uh, uh, Los Desperacitos, or uh, the the disappeared ones, and it's about Pinochet in our, no, in Chile, excuse me, Pinochet uh, and his disappearing his political opponents uh, in Chile. Uh, Voice of America um, struck a, a leftist revolutionary tone uh, that to my young ears hearkened to uh, the Spanish Civil War and the Lincoln Brigade. Um, the liner notes uh, were used to good effect. So the um, the liner notes that came in the middle of the record and you took them out and the lyrics were on it, but it reproduced uh, Pablo Picasso's Guernica, um, which was really my introduction to Picasso and his painting. It was, I think, the first one that I, I'd ever seen that made any sense. It was very... Uh, Guernica is... Um, it's in a New York museum, and it's huge. It is huge. It's like, uh, you know, just the size of a, a large wall. And it's got, you know, uh, a minotaur symbolizing war, and it's got um, people being trod underneath it and there's like swords and there's suffering and then there's there's one character in the painting reaching towards uh, a window in the side of a wall and that's really the only illumination and uh, the thought being that 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 window was was hope and uh, going towards that um, so anyway th this is a, a I thought this was an effective way that pop culture um, can introduce you to higher culture. Um, not that Picasso is a great artist for the ages, but he's certainly uh, an artist that uh, speaks to and about uh, the 20th century. Um, later, you know, as I read more, as I lived my life, I learned that the leftist revolutionaries uh, from 1930s Spain um, to Latin America in the 80s and beyond uh, did some pretty horrible stuff and um, to not realize that uh, really is politically and historically naive and I, it's hard to explain uh, that Van Zant. um uh, doesn't see that uh, it certainly um, I, I found his frequent snotty political asides throughout unrequited infatuations to be uh, off-putting um, I think I think Van Zant, uh, like many experts in specific fields uh, he presumes he's an expert in other discrete fields and he's wrong um, but what he was right about was arranging making a song a hit 
making it sound great and I, I kind of wanted to have a look at what his experience was uh, at Springsteen's side. So there's a couple of, uh, th there's some passages that I'd like to share. Uh, he, for example, Van Zant writes, in those days, and this was mm, the late 70s, uh, he, they were in um, LA at this particular time, uh, but they were working um, on Darkness on the Edge of Town or, or, or preparing to. Uh, Van Zant writes, in those days, Bruce always wanted me with him. I was like his little brother, and he knew I was always watching his back. It was always a complimentary relationship. He was, he is, a year older and very much a mentor when it came to the art and the business. But there were some things that I did better, like arranging songs, and I always had more street smarts. I was, I am, much more connected to the social world because I had to work in it where he was always a bit distant, focusing on creating his own world and living in it. And then a little bit later, he would uh, provide some insight into um, the making of um, uh, my favorite, um, my favorite record, which is uh, Darkness uh, on, on the Edge of Town. Um, for example, uh, if we, um, oops, I'm doing it again. Uh, he writes, uh, we all briefly became drug addicts on this one, except Bruce. He was the only guy I knew who never did drugs. He had his own vice, which was mentally beating the crap out of himself. I'm going to clean up some of Van Zant's more colorful New York rock and roll language. Um, uh, Springsteen mentally beating the crap out of himself. Uh, again, about John Landau, as if John's new role as manager wasn't complicated enough, his unique set of skills, knowledge of culture, and experience with psychoanalysis made his other new role equally invaluable as he redefined the role of the record producer. Not that he wasn't musical, he was and is very musical. But the E Street Band largely produced themselves, and I would be taking more responsibility for the music and sound over the next few records. His, Landau's, far more important role and unique value was in helping Bruce analyze and discover the bigger picture, the themes he would be talking about, and his artistic identity. Bruce even having artistic aspirations was already odd, very few rockers were thinking that way. Jackson Brown, maybe, and who else? Even the Beatles didn't think that much, uh, excuse me, even the Beatles didn't think about such things until they were liberated from having to reproduce their songs live, which resulted in Revolver. Then their imaginations were free to take them to wonderful, new, bizarre places as varied as Eleanor Rigby and Tomorrow Never Knows. In spite of his game-changing accomplishments, Bob Dylan didn't seem to have any artistic pretensions at all. That makes sense to me. Uh, you know, Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, for example, did what they did, but were they trying to make music that would, you know, be listened to 50 years later? Were they trying to uh, make a big statement? It's hard to imagine that they were. 
whole lot of love, really. I think it just sounded cool. And it was also stolen from John Lee Hooker, I think. Um, but that's not the point. That's not the point. Um, the other thing that, that I find so intriguing about Van Zandt is the way in which he he likes the show the, the spotlight but he doesn't he doesn't need to be the guy he doesn't need to be uh the main guy and so what you see him refer to is is in a a mafia sort of um um <laughs> you know managerial chart uh, is there's a boss and there's an underboss and it, and as it turns out Springsteen's nickname became the boss he's you know he's he's the boss he signs the paychecks he he makes the decisions he's the final word and sometimes he ran contrary to that uh, in writing uh, in, in talking about darkness on the edge of town uh, Van Zant said uh, should have been called uh, 70 lost arguments but uh, Van Zandt swears to this day that Darkness on the Edge of Town, arguably my favorite record of all time, could have been so much better if only Springsteen had listened to him about the way he, Van Zandt, uh, wanted to put it together. As, I, I don't know that he, I, I doubt that he's right uh, because Darkness is so exquisite, um, such, a, such a tight record, both, both sonically, uh, you know, musically. Uh, but also lyrically, uh, the vocal performances. Uh, it's hard, it's, it's impossible to think that Van Zandt's right, but it's interesting, and this is, this is why there's, there's horse races. But Van Zandt defined himself as a consigliere, or as an underboss, somebody uh, who, somebody who uh, has responsibility, but who's not the main guy. There's a, there's a, section in Aaron Sorkin's West Wing uh, that is um, so so there was Martin Sheen who was President Bartlett he was the president he was the guy but his his chief of staff was Leo McGarry played by John Stewart and the deputy chief of staff was Josh Lyman played by Bradley Whitford not that at this point it matters so there was an episode where Bartlett tells Lyman, says, you're willing to throw the Constitution out just to please Leo. He says, the, thing, the difference between you and me, this is the president talking, he says, I always want to be the guy. You want to be the guy the guy counts on. And through the course of the series, you, they're very true to the characterization that uh, John Spencer's Leo McGarry, um, the actor playing the role, um, w was the guy that the guy, you know, maybe use capitals or um, italics, uh, that he was the guy that the guy counted on. And I think that there comes a time in life when you have to consider these things. Uh, Charles Dickens in David Copperfield opens up with yet another killer opening line. Chapter one, I am born. And here Dickens writes in Copperfield's voice, 
Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. Sometimes we're not, it's not all about us. <laughs> Sometimes we're not the guy, uh, but we can maybe be the guy the guy counts on. Uh, I think who would be the hero in my, in my story? I don't know that it's me. I think there are people who have enabled me to accomplish, you know, to look to the extent that I've accomplished things, there's people who have helped do that. That reminds me of Isaac Newton, who said, if I've seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. Look, I haven't discovered anything. I haven't, but personally, I feel like I have benefited by standing on the shoulders of giants. And we all, you know, build on the things that people have learned before, which is why, which is why the fact that kids don't read books, the fact that young men don't learn how to, you know, make a living or, you know, take care of things that they kind of want to eat Cheetos and play video games is so discouraging. Uh, anyway, uh, read books. So uh, the other thing to use to illustrate the guy and being the circle around the guy um, is Sinatra, the Rat Pack. And then there's the, and so that's Sean Levy's book uh, called The Rat Pack. Um, Sinatra had this quality. He had a once in a 500 year voice. Plus he had charisma. He had a quality um, as, uh, as one female character in the HBO adaptation of the Rat Pack uh, put it, um, you, 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 you want to mother him, and then the next instant you want to canoodle with him. Uh, words to that effect. Uh, he, Sinatra was the chairman of the board. He was the guy. I mean, in rel in a relative sense, among the the, the you know the celebrities who are you know hanging out at the pool and at two you know having dinner at two shores and uh, you know bopping around Hollywood uh, and, and the comparison between Sinatra and Dean Martin, who was the next most talented guy, I mean look, in Sammy Davis Jr. but I mean, it's a, it's a conversation, right? So um, between Sinatra and uh, Dean Martin is kind of similar to Springsteen and Van Zant, though I think you can over overanalyze that and over, overextend it. The, the metaphor is not perfect. Um, you know, S Dean Martin ultimately, though, was kind of apathetic. I mean, he had what he wanted. Uh, until his his son died prematurely and not even Sinatra could get him that back. Um, uh, you know, Sammy Davis actually loved his wife as opposed to just being a, uh, a serial philanderer. Joey Bishop absolutely didn't care if he got invited to uh, Rat Pack parties or not. Uh, whereas Peter Lawford just cravenly, droolingly had to have Sinatra's 
uh, approval and acceptance. And once you signal that, you're kind of asking for, you're giving a guy something to hold over your head. Don Rickles, on the other hand, would say things that nobody else could ever. Rickles, by the way, isn't really considered a member of the Rat Pack, though they ran in the same circles. Um, he was he was a Vegas guy. Uh, he, Rickles was Jewish to um, um, the Roman Catholicism of Sinatra and Martin, and uh, some of the guys who made sure that uh, things went okay for uh, Sinatra. Anyway, Don Rickles would say things about uh, made guys, mafiosos, and even Sinatra himself, and Sinatra would howl. He thought it was so funny, and uh, nobody else could have gotten away with it. Nobody else. And that's kind of being part of the team. Uh, Van Zant writes um, about his role as Springsteen's sideman, his underboss, his consigliere. He says, uh, he writes, we closed out 1978 still on the road with darkness, still fighting for our lives on stage. We really became a band on that tour. Longevity, if you can survive it, brings unexpected rewards. That's why bands should stay together. It's not just talent, it's loyalty. And over time, history, four of us originals left. You can maybe find the talent, you can probably buy the loyalty, but you can't replace the history. And believe me, when it's a bad night, tough conditions, new audience, rainy and cold, or even a particularly good one, you don't want to look, you don't want to, look to your left and see a gun for hire. You want to see me. And I think that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty well written. It's one of the best passages of the books, of the book. Uh, and and I think about my friends, uh, the giants upon whose shoulders I've stood. Um, they, they, uh, I think that they are often heartened, not because I can actually do anything. Not because I actually bring anything to the table except for this, I don't, I don't look, I don't know. Uh, you tell me, you tell me and uh, I can stop giving my head shrinker, um, uh, I can stop giving her a copay. Um, we, there's, um, um, okay, this is where I get into trouble. So we, we to get back to it, um, what I really appreciate Van Zant's look inside uh, Springsteen's process, uh, the another perspective on bringing the works, the, the the records, the songs, the music that have meant so much to me uh, to life. So if. Darkness on the Edge of Town is my favorite record, followed very close behind. I mean, it's always, I mean, I like it better than The River, but I like The River a lot. And it was on The River uh, tour that I first saw him, uh, saw Springsteen and the band. They played um, 
McNichols Sports Arena. It's where the Denver Nuggets played basketball in the in the 80s. Um, it, it was one of the first concerts I saw, and certainly uh, the best I'd ever seen, and uh, uh, probably still uh, among the best shows. This is I was like 15 years old, and I didn't know didn't know anything. Uh, Van Zant writes about making the river. He says uh, the river had a completely different atmosphere than the previous two albums. Bruce's identity had settled into the rural stand and fight speaking from the working class perspective persona of darkness which didn't mean he wasn't still in his write and record a million songs and find the album in their later mode but at least this batch sounded great so it was a much more pleasant atmosphere for our endless song arguments which i usually lost and the river was a double album which meant more room for some fun songs along with the substance. Bruce kept Hungry Heart, but threw out classics like Loose Ends, Take Em As They Come, Roulette, and Restless Nights. Eh, who needs them? I happen to like Crush On You, but in place of Where The Bands Are, or Mary Lou, or I Wanna Be With You, I don't know. The other subject that was discussed enthusiastically was the treatment of slow songs. Bruce and John were together on this, the sparser the better. Bruce was always so concentrated on his writing on the page, with good reason and great results, that I'm not sure he ever fully understood the difference between a song and a record. My attention deficit disorder couldn't take it. I was constantly trying to add production and arrangement ideas to songs like Racing in the Streets and Wreck on the Highway and he wanted stark and stoic because that's what the cinematic lyrics suggested. But a record ain't a movie. It's a fine line how sparse you can make something without the visual assistance before you lose an audience. There's no right or wrong here. That's what makes the longest discussions, but according to my ADD, they'd occasionally go too far. Check out the two versions of Racing in the Street for a good example. But Bruce preferred airing on the side of desolation, and you have to respect the discipline of sacrificing the musicality of a song to make a point. Whatever, if he's happy, I'm happy. I'm very proud of the river, which remains my favorite official album, but too many of the best songs ended up on the second disc of tracks. Yes, yes, I did do a Steve Van Zandt imitation there at the end. So, Stevie Van Zandt, Unrequited Infatuations. Um, again, you know, I, I think some stuff's very interesting. I think he has a real feel for showbiz. I think... Uh, it's interesting to know that he left the band once uh, uh, after, I mean, he helped arrange some of the horns. He actually wasn't in the E Street Band in the mid-70s, though he was a friend of Springsteen's. He was doing most of his work with Southside Johnny and the Ashbury Jukes, and uh, uh he had he, he arranged I think the the horns to meeting across the river, but then uh, he had a falling out with Springsteen's then manager um, Mike Appel, 
and uh, Springsteen would in due course have a, f a falling out with his manager Mike Appel. So he wasn't, so he, Van Zant, wasn't uh, in uh, the band in the in the mid uh, for, he wasn't on Born to Run, he wasn't on the two albums before. He, he joined up uh, later on. Um, so he during that time away he played he toured with oldies acts now if you go back another decade you go back to the british invasion um which began with the the beatles play, coming from uh leaving coming from england playing in in new york playing ed sullivan that would have been like 1964. uh van zant writes you know the world cracked in two I mean, there was everything before the Beatles and everything after. And look, Elvis played a part of that too, but there were still people, you know, whatever, listening to the Easy Listening and, you know, Vic Damone and, you know, I think Bobby Darren was still alive. So just acts like that. The difference being um, um, after Elvis. But after the Beatles, everybody went out to be in a band. Everybody, everything changed. And so there were all these all these groups who got cut from their contracts and um, they were mad because they were still in the in their peak in their prime and uh, Van Zant ended up playing uh, back up with them on tour and that's where he cut his teeth as a live performer and it's how he gained I mean it's part of how he gained such an encyclopedic knowledge of the the bands that came before. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example, and this is entirely made up. It's entirely fictitious, and I believe that it makes the point exactly right. So you may you might hear a song like "You Got What It Takes." And a handful of people are going to recognize that the singer there is Marv Johnson. I think my friend Chris Levine, uh, who does Spotify's very fine Refresher podcast, uh, Refresher Pop Culture Therapy podcast on Spotify, um, Levine might know that Marv Johnson does You Got What It Takes. Uh, but I think the difference between my close personal friend Chris Levine and Steve Van Zant is Van Zant could also tell you who produced you. You got what it takes. Uh, he probably um, uh, knows who played bass, who played the drums, uh, who played the piano. So, um, and, and as far as I know, uh, Van Zant actually knows some of those guys personally so uh remember in um you know, one of the one of the oceans movies with Clooney and Pitt with George Clooney and Brad Pitt uh a, a big thing is made about shaking Sinatra's hand not that Sinatra was the was the the messiah uh, it was it was more like uh, uh for a guy to have shaken Sinatra's hand put him it makes him a direct connection to the golden age of the thing and and I think Steve Van Zant was a direct connection 
you, you know, Springsteen himself has made the point that when everybody started a band in 1964, rock and roll had been around for about 10 years. So go back 10 years and find out, you know, it, it, there wasn't that much to build on. So all of that stuff that, you know, whoever was doing, whether it was, whether it was Eric Clapton or, or, or whatever, Pro Call Harem or just, just anybody, um, anything that they were doing in the late 60s, it, rock and roll had only been around for a short time and Springsteen and Van Zant and guys who were like five years younger. Remember, Springsteen was like 23 when he was signed to Columbia to be one of the new Dylans because Dylan was the impossibly old age, or getting to be the impossibly old age of 30 years old. So, uh, um, as I as I say this um, to you, uh, Bob Dylan just turned 81. That makes him my mom's age, and um, Springsteen is he's born in uh, 49, so uh, that makes him in his early 70s, right? 73 this year. So, um, yeah, that's right. The math holds up. Oh yeah. Uh, let me do some more figuring in my head for you. Anyway, that's that. That's uh, that's. Um, so so that's how Van Zant got his encyclopedic knowledge. Ultimately, I don't. You know, look, I I don't hold the political views against Van Zant, though I I don't respect him for them. Um, nor do I. <laughs> Nor, nor am I impressed by his uh, uh, assertions about being a considerate lover. Um, it was rock and roll in the '70s, after all. Um, not judging him on, or his book on any of that. Um, I think you judge on. Whether and this is true if it's your friend or the guy whose work you're consuming, um, you're judging on who you who you trust, because you've got to trust the guys you ride with. Uh, you've got to trust their skill and their experience. Uh, as he says, their, their loyalty, their courage, their love, and the history that comes from riding a long time. Um, that's being the guy uh, who flies off your wing, right? That's your wingman, which is another way of saying sideman, sidekick, conciliary, underboss. Um, that's the guy who you want to see when you look to your left on a bad night, that's the guy that the guy counts on. So that brings us to an end of, <laughs> that brings us to the end of uh, episode 92.3.0 of the Managing Expectations podcast. I really want to apologize to Missy to Paul, to Tirza for having a technical problem and not getting uh, your terrific contribution to the show 
uh, recorded in a way that we could share it with everybody. Really miss Brian. I, I, I wish that uh, my aide de camp would come back from um, uh, his uh, his uh, time away, and uh, uh, we could record another a, a fresh show for y'all. Um, but you know, all things in due course, right? In the meantime, if you could find it in your heart to like, subscribe, like, subscribe, and share, that would be great. If you want to give us a review and then be a scribe and write a little something positive for, about the show, we'd appreciate that too. Please don't forget to check out allinadream.us. Don't uh, hesitate to go to mrswinger.com. And maybe most importantly, check out managingexpectationspodcast.com, which is where we are selling merch, including our fantastic t-shirts now available in, or okay, no, not now because this is going to hit in a minute, but um, soon to be available in navy blue and also dark gray. And we have a ladies racer back tank available and then in, in addition to stickers we've got uh, poster prints coming of the big big face logo a lot of things are going great um, uh, personal safety and security sense of contentment in a world gone mad maybe not be uh, a couple of them but uh, we, we, we do appreciate you listening, and we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you stay safe, and uh, thank you very, very much. So uh, this is Jeff Winger saying rock and roll. <laughs>